Psalm 78, reading in verse 1. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we've heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children." that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. The sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows, yet they turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law. They forgot his deeds and his miracles that he had shown them. He wrought wonder before their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the land of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through it, and he made the waters stand up like a heap. Then he led them with a cloud by day and all the night with a light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Yet they still continued to sin against him to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their heart they put God to the test, by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God. They said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Father, we're grateful for your recorded holy word. And even as we've read it this morning, this amazing account of your goodness and your grace and your supernatural hand at work with your people. Lord, even in our lives, we know of your grace and your mercy and your supernatural hand in our lives. And Lord, sometimes we're tempted as well to ask the same question. Maybe not always by our speech, but perhaps by our actions and our lack of speech. Lord, I pray that you'll speak to us this morning, but more than anything, let the name of Jesus be lifted up And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would have your full way in our hearts and lives and in our plans and purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Can God provide a table in the wilderness? Can God provide a table in the wilderness? Now, the musician Asaph, here in the Psalms, is writing and he's describing the exodus when the nation of Israel left Egypt, called the Exodus, and he's writing, describing it, they had, they had the promised land in the Old Testament, and friends, we have the promised life in the New Testament. He has promised us peace and joy and hope and salvation, deliverance, healing, and provision. He's promised us an eternal future with him. But somehow, the nation of Israel, between the Exodus and the, promise, the entrance to the promised land, they got stuck. Have you ever been stuck? Now, I know we've probably all experienced being stuck in the winter. Or if you're a four-wheeler, being stuck in the mud somewhere out in Kananaskis or somewhere. But, you know, 
when God has purpose in your life and he's given us these great and precious promises and we're going along in life, but we just seem to be stuck. Our forward motion in our Christian life has somehow become stagnant and stalemated and we're just stuck. We don't believe we're moving as much as we should have. What do we do? Well, we can begin to survey the situation. We begin to try to ask God and look into his word and find out why we're stuck. But in that moment of being stuck, there's some things that we should not ever do. And that is we shouldn't stop, grumble, and complain. We shouldn't just stop, grumble, and complain. And somehow, here in the Psalms, this nation of Israel, they seem to have come to the place where they're now holding God in contempt, and his method of deliverance. Have you ever said or thought, well, God, I I know you're up there, but couldn't you have chosen a better way to solve my problem, to work this out? Couldn't you have found an easier way? Couldn't you have found a simpler way? Or couldn't you have just found a faster way? I know you're there, and we just read in Psalm 78 that these people had the nerve to look at Almighty God and declare, God, you've done some amazing things in our history, but I don't know if you can do this one. I'm not so sure this is one you can handle. They had no assurance that God was with them. Now, we sing, or we used to sing, Blessed Assurance. How many know that song? Jesus is mine, oh what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. But they had no assurance. I hope our assurance isn't just in the words of a song. But it's in a life relationship with God that we know, that we know, that we know he's with us. Every now and again... I think it's good for us to look back on the ways that God has blessed us and looked after us and protected us. Let's just pretend that you're the nation of Israel this morning. I want to give you a quiz. So here's the quiz, and you just respond, you know, out loud, the answer to these questions as I give you this quiz. Okay, Israelites, did God keep you when the ten plagues were released? Yes or no? Yes. Four of you. Maybe, maybe you're being like the nation of Israel now. I don't know. But come on now. We, we need participation. Did God not supply you with silver and gold when you left Egypt? Yes or no? Yes. Sure he did. They just heaped it on them to get them out of town. Get out of Dodge. Here, take this. Didn't God not part the Red Sea for you to walk over on dry ground and destroy your enemy? Yes. Yes. Did God not give you a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day? Yes. Did God not supply you with water from a rock? Did God not provide you with manna from heaven? Did God not give you quail for meat to eat? Then why in the world would you assume that he can't do something for you right now? Why would we assume that? Given the nation of Israel aside, and now we're back to our own identities. Why would we assume, with all that God has done, that what you're facing right now, God can't handle? Because sometimes we live the way 
We live in a way that is, is demonstrating that we don't believe he can do it. If God did all that, can he not do all of this that you are facing right now? I want to remind us all this morning that God is able and God is willing and God can provide for you a table no matter where you are at. He can provide a table. If God is powerful enough to throw billions of stars into the sky, if he can measure the water in the seas, if the earth is not God's footstool, then you tell me what God cannot do. I've told you before, I think, and I'll tell you again. Remember when the disciples were in jail and uh, they were praising God? It's something like the band this morning, you know, that, that one song multiplied. They got really going, kind of got a country beat. And uh, so the disciples are singing in jail and, and God's listening. Now, you know that God has music in his body. I mean, after all, he created you know, Southern Gospel, he created the blues, he created, you know, modern music. He, God created music. So here he is, he's listening to the disciples, and the music is starting to get to him. And he starts to tap his feet to the music. And the earth is his footstool, and he causes an earthquake, and now he come out of jail. The earth is God's footstool. If the earth is God's footstool, man, my God must be big. He must be an amazing God. It's easy for us to look back at the Israelites and point fingers at them and be critical and say they should have done this, they should have done that. But what about us? What about me? What about you? What about our times of doubt? What about our times of frustration and our times of uncertainty? I wonder how God views us today. All of us are probably coming from something or we're going, walking into something. But whatever direction we're in, we still need to trust God. We still need to trust in him. And because of Israel's attitude, somebody once said our attitude really determines our altitude. Because of Israel's attitude, God was a bit angry. Because there's nothing worse than someone being unfaithful. Nothing worse. In the natural, if that was us, we probably would have been tempted to say, if we were God, after all I've done for you, bringing you out of Egypt, keeping my promise to Abraham, keeping the plagues from you, Providing a way for your firstborn to be spared while I killed all of Egypt's firstborn. And now you begin to complain. Scripture says that when Israel was in the wilderness, they complained and said, We had it so much better in Egypt. Man, we had garlic and leeks. They're going to go back for garlic and leeks? We had it so much better, they complained. Psalm 95, verse 10 and 11 says, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart. They do not know my, name, my ways. Therefore I swore my anger. Truly they shall not enter into my rest. God was angry with them. 
because they did not enter into their rest. Friends, there's a place that is opposite of worry, opposite of frustration, and it's called rest. We can have concerns about the situation, but we don't have to move into worry about the situation. To say we're not concerned is to say we're not human. We all have concerns. But to move from concern to worry is not the place to be. Let's not let the situation move us into worry and frustration. God is saying, after all I did for them, they still rebelled. Friends, it's good for us to remind ourselves of the goodness of God. Our God is not a one-hit wonder. Where he just does this one thing. He's not a one-hit wonder kind of a God. Scripture says, my God is an ever-present help in the time of trouble. Ever-present help. There are times we just need to take a deep breath, call to mind God's faithfulness, and allow us to just release the worry and the stress as we remember God's faith, faithfulness. We are naturally curious. All of us are curious how God is going to help. But when we have the assurance that God is going to help, then we begin to look with expectation, Lord, have your way. I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know who you're going to use. And that doesn't really matter because I know you brought me too far to leave me right now, and I know that supernaturally, God, you're going to do something that is going to surprise me, and I give you the glory and the praise. I know that you, God, are going to make a way. And he does make a way. Maybe you know this already, but let me remind you of this truth. God believes, get this now, God believes the earth is his. He believes the earth is his. So that when he wants to show up with a table and a spread, he will do it anywhere, anytime, anyhow, whenever he wants. It doesn't matter if it's in the desert. Doesn't matter if it's on Monday or Tuesday or whatever day of the week. Doesn't matter if it's in the hospital. Doesn't matter if it's in the education system. Doesn't matter where it is. God is going to show up with a table and he will say, I will provide, I will guide, I will bless, I will direct, I will comfort, I will heal. Last week, numerous people came to me afterwards and during the week and said, Pastor, when you mentioned somebody had a sore arm, God touched my arm. And uh, I don't know, I forget how many there were now, um, but uh, you need healing from God? Guess what? He's here to heal. You need deliverance? He's here to set you free. You need salvation? He's here to forgive and save. You need provision? He's, he's our provider. He's El Shaddai. Our God is more than enough. God wants to set a table for you in your wilderness. We have to learn, though, to fight our emotions. Every emotion that we have is not godly. How many know that? Every emotion we have is not godly. And we have to fight these emotions with faith. This is not just trying to talk yourself into something, not just some easy believism kind of a thing, but it's the realization that God is actually in control and that he really does want to help. That's who God is. God will provide a table in the wilderness in the presence of your enemies. Psalm 23, verse 5. 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. And because he wants us to know that wherever we are in life, that he's, that it is really going to be okay. Wherever you are in life, friends, it's really going to be okay. God says that on this journey, I want you to learn how to walk by faith. And we're so used to trying to fight and to maneuver for position and promotion. But in the faith walk, we let go and let God. Just let God deal with it. God can provide a table anywhere. And at the table, understanding at the table is really the place when you come to the table at home. I hope this is your your experience, when you come to the table at home, it's a place of resting and relaxing. No stress. Just enjoying the company of family or friends or maybe even just you and Jesus. Just a place where it's a place of rest. And you sit there at the table and you enjoy your macaroni and cheese or whatever. and Or, you know, tube steak, bologna sandwiches, whatever it is. Steak. It's a place of rest. Even when Israel was stuck in the desert, God just wanted Israel to learn how to trust him. Friends, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 says of you and I, God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. The position of rest. The position of assurance. It's going to be okay. Tomorrow's going to be a great day because God is going to be in my day. There's a number of places where we could choose to sit. We could choose to sit in a chair of comfort. You know, where we just, uh, and we have the remote. The kids are crying, oh, TSN, here we come. ESPN, maybe. Our spouse is calling us, oh, oh, news, we've got to see the news now. We turn things on, we turn things off in our seat of comfort. Where life is just kind of, honey, could you get me another Coke? Just that seat of comfort. Friends, Jesus didn't come to make us comfortable. He didn't die on the cross that we might have easy street and rock there and just kind of choose in life the things that we're going to see and not see. Or, if it's not the chair of comfort, sometimes, you know, we find another chair. It's not quite as comfortable, but it's the chair of criticism. Psalm 1.1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, and Also later in the verse says, or sit in the seat of the scornful. 
In our world, society, there's such a spirit of criticism and everybody's against something. And unfortunately, that same spirit at times finds its way into the church. You know, I, I didn't really like that song this morning. Let me tell you something about the music we sing in church. It isn't for you. Not one song that we sang this morning was for you. It was all for him. It wasn't for you, it wasn't for me. It was for him. All right, I don't like the way the church does that. They should do it this way, and they should do it that way. And Friends, it's not about what the church should be doing. It's what you and I should be doing. What are we doing? What am I doing? What are... It's so easy sometimes either sit in the chair of comfort or sit in the chair of, of the critic and just kind of be the armchair quarterback of every ministry and everything that takes place within the church. We know that modern society has become so critical Don't allow the spirit of criticism to affect you, to affect your worship, or to affect your commitment to God's house and the church. That is not where we're seated. We are seated at a table that denotes rest and supernatural provision and trust in a God who is able. There was a I did preach about this fella some time ago, but there's a story in the Bible about a guy whose name was Mephibosheth. Now, if you say that three times, you've got the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Mephibosheth. What a name. Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. Now, when Saul and Jonathan were out in battle... And Saul and Jonathan were both killed in battle. So when a king is killed, usually anybody else who's aspiring to be king makes sure that all the descendants of the previous king are annihilated so that none of them can rise up and take back the throne. So the one looking after Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, thought she better get this young lad away. He's five years old. And so she grabs him and and heads out of the palace, and she's going to take him away. And in the process, she drops him. And as a result, Mephibosheth is crippled. And when you think of the story of Mephibosheth and David, it's an amazing similarity between you and I and King Jesus. We've all been crippled, dropped, rejected, let down somehow, some way in life. And we may be walking with a limp, some sort of reminder in our life or some memory or whatever, something that has scarred us. And so when David discovers that He asked the question, are any of Jonathan's... Because he promised Jonathan that he would look after Jonathan's descendants when they were just friends. 
Jonathan knowing what was going to happen, that David would one day be king. So David asked the question, are any of Jonathan's descendants alive? And somebody said, yes, there's one. Mephibosheth's brother had already been killed by some well-meaning people. There's one, but he's crippled. So David calls for Mephibosheth to be brought to his home. They go and get Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth comes in. And I don't know to what degree he was crippled, and I don't want to appear as if this is some humorous or making fun of a person who has a disability. But he's just maybe barely able to walk. He no longer could run with his friends and play soccer or baseball or anything else. He's just barely can walk. And he comes in to David's palace and he bows down before David. And David says to Mephibosheth, as long as I'm king, there's a place for you at my table. And so Mephibosheth pushes into the table. And David spoke to Mephibosheth as if there was nothing wrong with his physical being. He saw Mephibosheth as a promise that he made to his father that he would look after his descendants. And he says, you'll be seated at my table as long as I am king. And friends, as long as Jesus is king, <laughs> we're seated at his table. And he'll make a table in our wilderness or in our destitute situation or our almost impossible whatever it is. God can provide a table in our wilderness, amen? And he will provide a table for us. Mephibosheth could have spent his whole life in the critical chair because someone dropped him or let him down improperly or somebody failed him. He could have sat there his whole life saying, nobody cares. Nobody was there for me. I'm not going to trust anyone any longer. All because of one mistake. What mistake are you allowing influence you to bring you back and forth to the critical chair what mistake did somebody make or he could have jumped into the other chair and said I've had it so rough I deserve to sit here and I'm not going to do anything else unless it is for me in fact society owes me Because I've been hurt. Friends, we've all had someone in our life's journey that had let us down improperly. Maybe even dropped us. And maybe that experience is still hindering us. But at some point, we have to respond because the king is calling us to his table. The king's calling us to his table. It doesn't matter who did it. It doesn't matter why they did it. You may have been violated by family members. You may have been abused. You may have been criticized. You may have been put down. You may have been ostracized. You may have been rejected. And the enemy has told you, this side of the family hates you. 
and this side of the family doesn't stand, doesn't like you, or this or that, or some coach or some professor or some ungodly church person or somebody masquerading as a preacher or a deacon or elder has hurt you or said something to you that has made you feel like leaving the church. Friends, don't carry those ill feelings with you for the rest of your life because the King, Jesus Christ himself, is calling you to the table. And he's saying, come and dine. There's a table in the wilderness. You may be talked about. You may be hurt, mistreated, abused, but you can still come to the master's table and you can still say, thank you, God. I may be crippled in some area of my life, but as long as I can breathe, I'm going to give you praise and glory and worship because you didn't have to bring me to the table, but you did. You didn't have to die on the cross for me, but you did. Can God provide a table in the wilderness? I want to make a faith and prophetic statement right now. I believe that right now this very moment. God's Holy Spirit is pulling worry off of people. Just pulling it off. Pulling it off. I believe he's pulling resentment off of people. Anger. Bitterness. I believe he's saying to us, Let it go. Because, friends, we're seated in heavenly places. We're not seated there. We're not seated there. We're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's a place of rest. It's a place of protection. It's a place of healing. It's a place of provision. The king could have kept us being an enemy but we're no longer enemies of God. We're no longer an enemy. He calls us friends. He's saying, come and dine, church. Come and dine. There's an old song. I asked a few people if they knew it. They didn't know it. But how many know this old song? Come and dine, the master calleth. Come and dine. Oh, few of us know it. Glory be. Would you like to stand and sing it? No, no, I'll make you sing it. But just as come and dine, the master calls, come and dine. You may feast at Jesus' table any time. He who fed the multitude turned the water into wine. To the hungry calleth now, come and dine. In Second Samuel chapter 9, there where Mephibosheth, he comes in. And the king says to him as if his appearance didn't matter at all. Didn't matter. He says, as long as I'm king, there's a place for you at the table. And friends, your appearance doesn't matter. The scars of your life don't matter. The hurts don't matter. The injuries don't matter. The disabilities don't matter. The Nothing matters. 
Because God looks at you through the lens of his son, Jesus Christ. And he doesn't see all of those things. And he invites us to come to the table in our broken condition, our messed up condition, our feelings of inadequacy. You may never fit in the tech community. Or you, never might, you ne- might never be that socialite. Or fit into whatever country club there might be or whatever other club there is. But the king has called you to come and dine. The king says, as long as you're at my table. He says, as long as you're at my table. You need to get this picture. The king says, as long as you're at my table, there's only one criteria, it seems. And it's this. Don't look under the table. Don't look at the rejection, the hurt, the crippledness of your life. But look on the table. Because on the table is everything you and I need. The power there is in the emblem of his shed blood and his broken body. The fellowship, the communion that we have with Jesus Christ. Everything we need is on the table. And so he says, come to the table. You're welcome at my table. Just don't look under the table. At the past hurts and the sorrows and the things that have hindered us and kept, kept us back from being whom God has made us. Because when he looks at you and I, he doesn't see your crippledness. He doesn't see what other people have called an inadequacy. He doesn't see or hear all the words that somebody might have said. Or he doesn't see that moment you were abused and rejected and ostracized. But he says, look on the table. Because on the table is everything you and I need. So friends, we don't have to live by our crippledness any longer. We don't have to. Some people who have been in church for years and years and years are unfortunately still looking under the table at all the hurts, all the mistakes, all the disappointments, and all that stuff. Oh, Pastor, I remember way back four churches ago. Or I remember when I was... Well, Pastor, if you only knew how this person treated me. Oh, if you just were there to realize. And Jesus says, I made a table for you. In your wilderness, in your crippled state and condition. And there I spread this table. And I went to the cross and I paid the penalty. That you could come and sit at my table. But don't look under the table where you see your own 
inadequacies and you see the inadequacies of everybody else. But just keep your eyes on him. Can God provide a table for you in the wilderness? Can he? Yes, he can. And he has. So Jesus says, look at all that I've given you on the table. The grape juice representing the blood of Jesus Christ. The bread representing his broken body. Things that have been given to us as emblems of assurance and certainty that God will continue to provide until he calls us home. And friends, soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. And there's a chair with your name on it. <laughs> there's a chair with your name. And he says, come and dine. Come and dine. The master calls. This morning, worship team is going to come and they're going to sing that last song they sang. It fits so well, the song about the table. And, and as they come, we're just going to kind of do communion a little different today. And I was going to spread out, or have spread out more tables so that there'd be enough for everybody, but we can just go in shifts. And here's the deal. As they sing, everybody doesn't have to come. We'll make sure that you have communion. You have the emblem served to you if you don't want to come to the table or wait for your turn or whatever. But maybe there's something you're recognizing in your life that has been kind of just dragging on in your, in your walk. And it's kind of just slowed you down a little bit. And it's way too much weighing on your thoughts. And, and you hear the Holy Spirit saying to you this morning, come to the table. Let all the baggage and all this stuff go underneath the table and be reminded of what he's done for you. And I believe as we gather around the table, we're going to find there's, there's healing at the table. There's freedom at the table. There's joy. There's peace. There's hope. There's deliverance. There's salvation. Because there's a chair with your name on it. And Jesus is saying, Will you come and dine? He's calling you. If the tables fill up and you want to come to the table, just wait a few moments. People won't camp there, I don't think. But don't be in a rush. Perhaps this is the most important moment of your entire week and maybe life. As we let go and let God. Just let go and let God. 
And discover that place of rest at the table. And Father, as we gather around these tables and others who will be served, I pray that these emblems would not just be something we do, but they will be life. Healing would be imparted, faith, hope, peace, joy, love. We'd be restored at the table as we no longer look underneath the table, but at all you provided on the table. Through your precious blood and broken body, may these emblems that we partake of today remind us, O God, of the amazing miracle of Christ coming down, willingly giving his life for us. giving us hope in the future and providing a table for us in our wilderness. As they sing, just make your way and come and sit at the table and help yourself, the emblems, and partake of them and just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you and and just let go and let God and believe in the chair that you're sitting on. It's got your name. Pull up to the table. Don't look under. Please don't look under. Look on. Allow a miracle of God to touch your life this morning. And and after you've been at the table, just go back and be seated. We're not finished quite yet, but just come and help yourself at the Lord's table.